starting the book of Ruth tonight. And so I'm excited about that. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Greg is up and he'll grab one for you. And I'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. But everybody knows why they're here tonight. You brought your Bible, so Greg doesn't need to give anybody a Bible. So that's awesome. Book of Ruth, right after the book of Judges. Guys, are already there? Wow, that's fast. Hold on just a second. much stage noise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for uh, just the joy it is to gather together, Lord, as your people, knowing uh, just how great you are, God, and, and mighty and powerful, that you know what's going on in each one of our lives this evening. Personally, Lord, the, the trials, the, the difficulties, the good times, you're aware of everything. And Lord, you've invited us here this evening to hear from you and to touch our hearts. And and we are thankful for that, God. And we pray that we would have open ears to receive all that you want to teach us tonight, Lord, through this uh, book of Ruth, Lord, that you have in your word. And so we ask your blessing upon our time together. We pray, Lord, that you're glorified in all that we do. Thank you for this night. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Book of Ruth, supposedly written by the prophet Samuel. It's the eighth book in the Old Testament. Eight is the number of new beginnings. After spending months in the sinful pollution of the book of Judges, the book of Ruth is like a breath of fresh air. It's like, this is nice. Verse 1 says, Now came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So the events in Ruth take place during the days of the judges. But what a difference between these two books. Instead of violence and lawlessness, we see tenderness and love and sacrifice. You know, it's good to know that, that there are still good people in bad days and that God is, is at work even though evil and violence may, may fill the news. God has his people in strategic places and he's using them. Well, within these four small chapters, these 85 verses, the entire book of Ruth, there's a very big message. I think often we, we look at a small book in the Bible like this and we think, well, because it's a small book, maybe the message is kind of insignificant. But look at it this way. In the movies, you have what guys we call chick flicks. You know, they're, they're the, the, you know, the, the notebook or a, a walk to remember or, or sleep this in Seattle. I don't think I've seen any of those movies, but, but, you know, these girly romantic movies and, and, uh, you know, you compare that to our guy movies like Terminator, yeah, okay, or, uh, you know, Mission Impossible, or any Marvel movie, okay, any, yeah. But in reality, the chick flicks are the ones that most often have the, 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 the deepest plot of a story rather than, uh, you know, the, the guy flicks. And now in our case tonight, we can compare that to the books in the Bible. I mean, the book of Daniel. Oh, yeah, visions and prophecy and, and kingdoms that come. Awesome. Genesis, creation, a worldwide flood. Judges, Samson, pulling down the, the pillars and killing all the Philistines. Yeah. And when we come to the book of Ruth, what could be in that? Well, it's a love story. <laughs> it's a love story. But it's one of the greatest love stories ever told. It paints a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ coming on the scene and becoming our great kinsman redeemer. The book of Ruth is also a story of how God arranges circumstances that seem hopeless, that seem terrible, and orders them into his perfect plan. 
it'll it will encourage us to have faith that regardless of how out of control the situation may seem to be, God is in control. Now, this 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 four chapter book reads very much like a play with four acts, each taking place in different settings. And tonight we're just going to look at chapter one. We'll call it Act One. Look at verses one and two. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephaphrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now what is interesting, as we begin to look at the story, is the names of these people involved in our, in our story and and what they mean. Proverbs 21, 22.1 tells us a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver of gold. But what we find here is, is interesting. First we see that there's a healthy, happy Hebrew family and we see that by their names and what their names means. Elimelech means God is my judge or, or God is, is my king. Maybe a present day definition or interpretation might be whatever God tells me to do, I do because he's the king, he's the Lord of my life. Naomi's name means pleasant, and the fact that things are pleasant, that is up until the time the famine comes, and at the end of verse 1, but, but now it's pleasant because they're living in the promised land. And then there's Malon and Chilion. Their names are a little controversial, and, and that's because sometimes Hebrew names have two definitions. Sources tell me that, that, uh, that, that one source, that, that Malon's name means song, happy singing, they're happy in the house, and Chilion's name means, means complete or content. So we have a content, happy family singing songs of praise, living in the promised land, and mom is feeling pleasantly happy, and dad says, God is the king of our house, and everything is fine. On top of all that, they're living in Bethlehem, same Bethlehem that Jesus was born in. So they're living in Bethlehem, which the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Now what's interesting, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus is referred to as the bread from heaven, the living bread. So moms, dads, you want to have a healthy family, make sure they're living off of the living bread that comes from heaven, Jesus. So Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion, one big happy family living in Bethlehem, Judah. What does the name Judah mean? It means praise. So again, if we put this all together, we see that we have a husband that says, God is my king, the Lord of my house. A wife that says, things are pleasant, I'm a happy Hebrew woman. We have a son that says, you now know what I'm really, I'm really content. And we have another son that says, yeah, I've got a song in my heart, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Because we're living in the promised land and we're in the city that's reflective of God, providing for us every need that we have. And you know what? On top of all this, we are from the tribe of Judah. So our family's praising the Lord together. Everything is going great. And then we read, a famine has come to the land. Now, just because everything is going well, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything will continue to go well. The Lord allows trials and difficulties that come into our lives to test us, to help us grow closer in our relationship with Him, even if we're walking strong with the Lord. You know, we shouldn't go, Lord, everything's going good. I'm walking strong with you. I'm not caught up in sin. This is great. Why is this happening? There are times God just wants to take us through those times to test us, to, to draw us closer to Him. Now, there are times also when we may find ourselves walking in disobedience apart from God, and God will also use those trials and difficulties to get us back on the right track. Now, in the days of the judges, that's like many times in our day, God used foreign warriors or foul weather to get the people's attention. Foreign warriors or foul weathers. And, and in this case, he puts a stop to the rain. 
And suddenly they find themselves going through a drought-like time, and, and a byproduct of the drought is a famine. So what do they do? Well, we, we read it. In verse 2 it says, They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now, if you're living in the land that God has promised, and you're living on the promises of God, plus your names reflect a covenant relationship with God, and you're now beginning to experience a difficult and difficult times, do you wait on the Lord and expect a miracle, or do you leave? Do you say, do you know what, well, things are a little tough, but I know I have this covenant relationship with God, I know that I'm living in His land, and I know His promises are certain, so I'm going to stick it out because I trust in the living God. That's what you should do. Or do you say, you know what, these circumstances look ter- too terrible. I don't see uh, the solution is I need to do something in my flesh. I'm, I'm out of here. Well, I, I'm like, he didn't seek the Lord. He just said, we're out of here. And notice, of all places they go to, Moab. They go to Heathenwood. San Fran, Moab. <laughs> Lost Moab, Nevada. You know, I mean, listen, the Moabites, they're, they're sinful people. They were descendants of a very terrible union. Remember, after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Lot was afraid to stay in the city of Zoar, and he headed up to the mountains and stayed with his two daughters in the cave. Thinking that this was the only chance to continue the family line, Lot's daughters got Lot drunk and conceived children with him. In fact, Genesis 19.37 says, And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. That's where the Moabites came from. Later, when the nation of Israel camped next to the land of the Moabites and the Midianites, they tried to get Balaam to curse the Jews. When he was unable to, they listened to his plan for causing Israel to stumble by tempting them into idolatry and immorality and, 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 and with their woman and marrying the foreign woman. And, and then we, we know that under the king, rule of King Eglon, they oppressed the Israelites for 18 years back in Judges 3. That oppression ended when uh, uh, the judge he had, the left-handed Benjamin, killed this huge Fat king. Apparently, the event of uh, Ruth occurred sometime after this oppression. But needless to say, the Moabites—they were godless people. They were involved. They were involved in, in uh, child sacrifices, ritual prostitution. And this is where Elimelech, the leader of his family, takes his family. This is not only a stupid thing to do, but it was highly offensive to the Lord. So, what's the result of his actions? Judgment. Look at verses three through seven. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the woman of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-laws with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So we know famine had come to the land, tough times that I believe was designed by God to strengthen and toughen up God's people. But instead these folks decided to go when the going gets tough, the tough leave, they left. But instead of being a part of the solution by repenting, this man, the head of his family, Elimelech, sells his property in Bethlehem, takes off. He brings his wife and two sons to Moab to wait out the famine. It was supposed to be a temporary stay. Listen, whenever we leave God's place and venture into the world, we always tell ourselves, well, this is only temporary. This is, this is only one time. I just give you one time. But, but rarely it's, is the case. Once in the world, we find excuse after excuse of staying in it. And for this family, they made a bad choice. And now, as a result, there are consequences. Elimelech dies, and the son soon followed in death. 
It's interesting. Remember, I, I, I said, I mentioned that Hebrew names sometimes have two meanings. Well, the other meaning of, of Malon was to be weak, sick, or afflicted. And Chilean's other meaning of his name was pining towards destruction. Sickly and pining. Certainly not names you want to name your children when they're born, but, but it certainly described what happened in verse 5. They both died 10 years after their father. But they're living this time outside of the place of bread, outside of Bethlehem, outside of the tribe of, of praise, outside of Judah. And now, as a result, there are three widows left all alone in Moab. Horrible consequences for being outside of the will of God. Now, understand that these were different times than we are in now. Today, a woman you know, can find a job to support herself and provide for her own needs. But back then, widows had to depend on the kindness of others to support them. It was a miserable existence, especially for an Israelite living in the land of Moab. So word got out to Naomi that the famine was over in Bethlehem, so she decided to head back home. So in verse 6, we read, So she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, I see really within that verse and in this picture here a, a perfect comparison to a New Testament teaching. Here's, here's a perfect example of a prodigal daughter. You know, the prodigal son in the New Testament, the prodigal daughter in the Old Testament. I see somebody who, who had it all before she left. And we know that because verse 21 tells us, Ruth says, I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. She left full. Things were not uh, that tough for them when they decided to leave. They left full and returned empty. In the same way, the prodigal son, remember, he left full and he returned empty. See, what happens in the heart of a prodigal? Well, either you stay with the pigs or you come to your senses and you come back home. There's a big difference between a, a prodigal and a pig. A, a big difference. The heart of the prodigal says, hey, I've got to come back. The pig says, I'm going back to the pig pen. I, I like the mud. I think maybe from time to time you might find yourself with your arms folded and you're upset with God over a situation that you think was, was unfair or wrong and, and you find yourself going, oh, this isn't right, I'm leaving God, I'm, I'm not going to talk to God and you leave you know, maybe that, that house of bread, you leave that place and you're just now sitting in, in the pig mud complaining and arguing with God. Let me say this again, a pig will stay in the muck but a product will finally come back. A product will say, what am I doing here? This is no good, you'll come to your senses. And what you find is the same God that provided for you the first time is right there to see you through again and again and again. In fact, I think many times God is just waiting to see your heart and say, yeah, I, I want your heart to say, I want to come back. And God can turn tragedy into triumph. What do I mean by that? Well, even though we made the case that the trip to Moab was a disaster, the wrong thing to do, think about this. If Elimelech hadn't taken his family to Moab, there would be no Ruth. There'd be no Ruth. And Ruth is good, as, as we will see. Another case of Romans 8.28, God uses all things to, to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So Naomi, the prodigal daughter, comes back home. In verse 8, we read, And Naomi said to her da two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in his house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So Naomi is asking God to treat these gals with kindness the same way they treated their husbands while their husbands were still alive. Think about that for those of you that are married this evening. What if God treated you like you, you treat your spouse? Something to think about. In reality, God is much more merciful to us than we are to others. So Naomi says, girls, you need to go home to your moms. Look at verses 10 through 13. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. 
But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it has grieved me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, this might be a little too much speculation here, but, but there is something I see in this. I see some guilt being heaped up, and I see kind of a little pity party. I think that she may be saying, you, you go ahead. Don't mind me. I'll, I'll be all right all by myself. You know, who am I anyway? I'll just, just go home and I'll be all by myself. All by myself. Don't want to be all, you know, I, I have no hope. I don't have a husband. You couldn't wait for me to have a son and, and for that son to get old and wait around for all that to happen besides the very hand of the Lord is out against me and you, and you might as well come against me as well. And, and oh, I might, might be speculating too much, but I think she just might be throwing a pity party. I mean, here is God who's able to supply every need according to his riches and glory. Here he is available to her to minister to her heart. And he's about to do something so radical in the next few chapters, it'll blow her mind. That she just may be in that place of feeling sorry for herself. And I think there's a major lesson for all of us here. So often we find ourselves complaining right before God's about to move in a big way. Right before God's about to do something really exciting. And we jump the gun by complaining instead of praying. Now I confess, I was complaining to God, what, a Sunday, a week and a half ago, Sunday, when, when my son got married, Joey. Supposed to be an outside wedding. September is absolutely beautiful. White, puffy clouds, blue, blue skies, green grass, not much humidity. And on the way to the wedding, the weather app says it, it shouldn't be raining. And I've got the wiper blades going because it's not just sprinkling, it's raining. And I start complaining. Why, God, of all the days it has to rain, all the beautiful days in September, September's the beautiful time of the month in, in, in Missouri, why this is going to ruin everything. But I tell you, it was one of the most beautiful weddings I've ever done. The slight rain made the air not so hot. The barn that the reception was in was nice and cool. If it had been hot and sunny, the barn would have been, been just steamy. God knew what we needed. Now, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 61.3 that the Lord gives beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. God turned something I thought would be terrible into something beautiful. And I think here, Naomi's complaining, throwing a big pity party. The daughters are about to leave and they're crying. Now, look at verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, it kind of seems that Naomi is doing everything she can to keep Orpah and Ruth from coming back with her. One commentator suggested that she might have been embarrassed to bring a Moabite girls, a Moabite girls back with her since it demonstrated to the rest of the town that they had left the promised land. I, I, I think some people can be the same way when it comes to inviting non-believers to church. Oh, I don't know if I can bring this, this non-believer friend to church. I, you know, it, it might be too embarrassing. I think we forget that we were once non-believers invited to church at one time as well. Someone invited you and me. Well, Ruth does not want to leave Naomi's side. So we read on in verse 16. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. And I love what comes next. Often quoted in, in marriage ceremonies, this is real love. Look at verses 16 through 18. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people, your God my God. Will you die? I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now think about this. From Ruth's perspective, the commitment that she was making. She's committing to going to a new land. She's willing to follow Naomi wherever she goes. She's willing to leave Moab behind forever and follow Naomi to Israel. She's committing to a new leadership. She's willingly submitting to Naomi and allowing Naomi to guide her life. She's committing to a new lifestyle. She's willing to give up the old ways of of Moab and to conform her life to the way people live in Israel. She's making this dramatic change in her life. She's committed to a, a new lineage. Ruth is willing to cut ties with Moab. She wants to be a part of the nation which she is married into. She's ready to claim a new lineage. And she's committing to a new Lord. This is perhaps the greatest statement Ruth makes. And your God will be my God. She's willing to give up the gods of Moab and follow the one true living God of Israel. This is really her declaration of faith in Jehovah God. And finally, she's, committed, she's committing with no limits. She's telling Naomi she's willing to, to commit to this new plan for life as long as she lives. She even invokes a curse of God upon her life if she lets anything but death come between her and the commitment she's made. Now, what, what a, a, a beautiful picture of true love. Because what is the main ingredient in true love? It's commitment. Commitment. I think that it's a missing ingredient in so many relationships today. Well, they say, well, well, let's get married, but, but first let's have a prenuptial agreement so that when we end this commitment, uh, I get this and you get that, and what's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours. We have to make this deal. But to see a real commitment, there are no preconceived conditions. It's death till we part. I'm going to be committed to love you. Hang in there until death do we part. And this is exactly what we see in the scriptures. You know, it's not love based on, on sight. I think it'd be a, a really good thing in pre-marriage counseling. In fact, I think I'm going to implement this in my marriage counseling the next time I, I you know, take people through, through marriage counseling. I think it'd be a good idea to have the couple look at each other face to face and tell them to imagine each other without any hair and without any lips. And then say, would you still love that person? Would you still love them? See, I, I know often there are guys, not so much girls, but guys that come in, and, you know, maybe for pre-marriage counseling, and they see that there's this real love of the flesh. And they have to touch her arm and put the arm around her and got to hold hands and, and you know, all touchy, touchy, touchy. And I want to say, hey, are, are you, what are you in love with? Are you in love with, with her body or are you in love with her, with her heart and her mind? I mean, what's the attraction here? And the reason I think it's so important is many times guys may love someone because of their physical beauty, but when that fades, when that marriage starts going through tough times, are you still going to be there for each other? Through thick and thin. I have a pastor friend of mine that years ago lost his wife to cancer. But he loved her to the very end. You know, no matter what chemotherapy, chemotherapy did to her, love that was real no matter what she looked like. And he you know, recorded, man, he kept us up to date on it, thinking, man, that is love. It's loving the person for who they are. And not for, for what they have or what they look like down the road. That's what love looks like. First Corinthians 13, love is patient, love always protects, love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. What a perfect example that we see here between Ruth and Naomi. But think about this. What, what a perfect example of the commitment we should be willing to make to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We should be willing to cut off the old ties, the old life, and, and, and enter into the new land of blessing before the Lord. We must be willing to, to, to commit to His leadership for our lives. There should be a commitment to a new lifestyle based on the Word of God and the will of God. We should also consider ourselves dead to the old life and alive in a new relationship to the Lord. Our lineage has changed. Obviously, this all means that we must be a, 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 have a new Lord, a new master who dominates every area of our lives. And, and then finally, we should be willing to commit to the Lord in His way without any restrictions. Our commitment to Jesus must be complete, it must be absolute, and it must be final. What a great comparison we see with what, what Ruth did with Naomi and what we are to do with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, verse 19, Naomi and Ruth are on their way, we read, Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? Again, this is like the, the prodigal son. This is the prodigal daughter, so to speak. And here comes dad out to meet them. You know, the whole town is coming out to meet them. What do they say? We read, and, and this is the woman says, Is this Naomi? But, verse 20, But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. In other words, don't call me pleasant, but call me Bitter or mar, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Why, why, why are you calling me pleasant? Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is really interesting, because Miss Pleasant, Miss perfection Naomi goes through some serious trials and she moves from being pleasant now really to, to miss humble miss broken now she could have faked the whole thing she could have come, come back into town and the people could have said oh is this Naomi she's oh oh yes it is and my great God has directed me back to, to you I'm miss pleasant to be with you in the land of bread thanks for the welcome but she doesn't do that instead she returns in humility because things aren't going so great in her life now, what kind of effect is that having on Ruth? Well, Ruth comes back with Naomi because although Naomi is not living what would be considered that, ex- you know, that, 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 that life of example of some following God, you know, God still chooses to use it. And I think that's important to look at as we get ready to close. I think that today in much of the church we are tempted to present our relationship with God as somewhat... Uh, flawless to the rest of the world. You know, I'm, I'm walking in victory, uh, marching in the power, and praise God. And, and I believe that this is the attitude that we want to portray to the heathen world. But you know what? The heathen world, what they do when they look at that display, that attitude that we want to portray, the heathen world looks at them and goes, there's no way I can relate to that. There's no way I can behave like that. I mean, their lives are perfect. Everything seems perfect in their lives. They don't seem to struggle in anything in their lives. And they walk away because we're marching around in what would be considered this, this pseudo-victory. This, you know, and, but, but if we get really painfully honest with the world, and we say to them, last week I really had a hard time. You know, I, I, it was so tough, and I looked around to find God, and there was a season when I, I didn't sense Him in my life. I didn't know where He was at all, but I'm still trusting in Him. And I believe in Him, and I have, a, I have this relationship with Him, and, and, and you know what, I, I know I'm going through some trials. You know what happens when we do something like that? When we're honest with someone in the world that doesn't know Christ, they get to see what it means to really be a Christian, a real Christian. And they'll say to you, hey, I want to talk to you. I've never seen this before. I mean, I mean, you go through hard times like I go through hard times. You have difficulties like I have difficulties. I, I, I didn't know that. Well, tell me more about your God. 
See, it's true that God gives us what we need to get through hard, tough times. And He gives us the power we need to go through the Holy Spirit to keep going. But we certainly shouldn't pretend that we never go through hard times. It's God who is glorified when we go through trials, not when we pretend they don't exist. And, and I think that really touches the lives of non-believers. When we go through a hard time and people see it and they see we're still praising God and trusting God and, and they see God's power and they see God's glory. Now what is interesting is, is this same situation played an important part in Ruth's life and Ruth could now look at Naomi and say, well, wait a second, this woman, she's being real. She lost her husband. She, she, she lost her two sons. She's, she's lost one of her daughter-in-laws because she decided to go back to her foreign gods. But Naomi, my, my mother-in-law, she's going back to the house of bread. She's coming back to the land of praise. And Now, why is Naomi doing that? Because she knows in her heart that's the place where she's supposed to be. She needs to be back with the Lord. And it's not in, in glorious victory that she's marching back home. But it's in brokenness. It's in humility that she comes walking back saying, God will be faithful. I know He will. And Ruth looks on and says, I can relate to that. I, I can, I, I'll go with you because I want to see God work. And again, although Naomi said she left full in verse 21 and came back empty, let me tell you something. For the next three chapters, God's going to fill her and fill her and fill her and fill her. And, and, and at risk of giving away the story, God has nothing but good in his heart toward Naomi. He has plans to restore her husband's land to her, to bless her abundantly, and, and to continue her family name to King David and ultimately to Jesus Christ. But these were the steps that the Lord had to take to bring this about. She said in verse 20, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Don't call me sweetness, call me bitter. Maybe you're feeling a little Mara tonight. <laughs> bitter. You're angry because God's allowed some difficulty in your life to happen. Some relationship has been strained. Maybe you're upset because God has allowed you to enter into financial difficulty. Maybe you're mad at God because things haven't happened the way you hoped they would happen. You're bitter because you might feel like the very hand of God is against you and nothing is going right, as if you've not been blessed but cursed. Let me assure you, again, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Regardless of how the situation seems, of how the circumstances stand, God is working them out for your blessings. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. See, it's in the difficulties of life that our faith is tested. Where you can say, do you really believe what God says? That He loves you passionately. Naomi doesn't see it right now. All she sees is the devastation that has occurred to her family, but she doesn't realize that she's got a treasure right under her nose. I read the story of Danny Sampson who used a hand-me-down Colt 45 to rob a bank in Canada, getting away with $6,000. When the Mounties caught up with him, they confiscated the gun and sent it to their laboratory, where it was recognized as a collector's item. Danny discovered that he didn't have to rob a bank. His gun was worth $100,000. Here's the point. Hang in there. Wait till the end of the story. God's working things out for our good. He is in control. Even Job, in the midst of his affliction, said, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. See, without faith, you become bitter. But with the, with the eyes of faith, you will be better. See, God, I believe, allowed the circumstances to come in order that Naomi could be emptied. I believe God wanted these things out of her life in the first place so that she can be filled with the glory and power of God instead of the ways of the world. You know, as we close, God's mathematics and our own personal lives many times are quite different in the way that he adds and subtracts. 
I have found out that God many times doesn't just add, but many times He multiplies in our lives. And when God takes away something, we need to get ready when He comes back. Because when God comes back after He's had to take something away from you that you had before, He's not going to give you back to equal. See, that's the way God's mathematics works. He's going to give back in abundance what he had to take away. So we'll close tonight here because, again, what we see that God is going to do some amazing mathematics, not only with Naomi, but Ruth as well. I'm excited. So you can read ahead. We'll do chapter Act 2 next Wednesday. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the story of Ruth really is a story of your love for us and compassion and care and understanding. Lord, help us to guard our hearts against bitterness. Lord, help us to seek you first in everything that we, we, we do, Lord, especially in times of trials and difficulties, Lord, that come into our lives. Help us not to react with our flesh or react in what we think we should do, Lord, but help us to seek first your kingdom. In your righteousness, Lord. Lord, help us to walk in your spirit that we might glorify you, honor you with our lives and all that we do. Thank you, Lord, for your grace in our lives. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that uh, even at times we, we can be prodigals, Lord. We can go away and, and uh, maybe out of bitterness or anger over something that, that has happened, Lord, but you are still there, Lord. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. And like the prodigal son's father, you come running out with open arms to receive us every time. Such amazing grace, Lord. Love you so much. Thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand